0: The stuff that we're doing now, we help people get into a project, sell one of the two properties out. They're left with a property that's got a really low LVR, with strong cash flow, and then they're therefore ready to go and do something again straight away. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now
1: here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello and welcome to the Property Developer Podcast. As always, it is wonderful to have you with me. I'm doing well, and I hope you are too. I've got a great show for you as we speak with property developer Shane Hiscock about how he has grown a business that is doing $40 million worth of projects. Before we get to that, here's a quick update of what I've been up to. I'm looking at buying a site at the moment. I've pretty much done my initial due diligence and feel confident about the site, and the architect is confident on the number of townhouses we can get on there. The property is going to auction, so I'm not sure where the value will end up, and I'm just working on getting finance sorted for it. I've been in discussions with the agent to try and buy it before it goes to auction, and we are playing the usual games of teasing out numbers and details from each other. Obviously, I would prefer to secure it before the auction. I'll let you know how it goes. The townhouse project is bubbling along, party walls have gone up, and the roof trusses are going in. It's steady as she goes for now. So, today's guest is Shane Hiscock, a property developer doing multiple joint venture-type projects with investors. Shane has grown his business from doing a one-house new build to having 20 projects underway. He has learned a lot about managing partners, setting up joint ventures, and the mindset you need to grow a developing business. And Shane shares four books that he thinks will help property developers take their business to the next level. I started off by asking Shane what food he would eat until he was sick.
0: (laughs) Great one. Uh, my wife's lasagna.
1: Oh, I'm a fan of lasagna too.
0: Yeah, yeah. my wife is a Italian so she, uh, she cooks an amazing lasagna and um, when she does, I just eat it all week because she does it in a big batch. So yeah, I'll eat it for every lunch for the next seven days. I'm fine with that and dinner.
1: So. And is that with uh, like a bechamel sauce or more a tomato-y sauce? More of a bechamel sauce. Ooh, yeah, yeah, you're talking my language. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. No, I uh, can eat lasagna as well until I'm not feeling very well. It fills you up. It does. It does indeed. It sits in your tummy for a while. True, 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 true. So Shane, give us a little bit of a background about how you have become a property developer that's got multiple projects on the go.
0: Uh, so how that happened was I used to work for IBM, so I, I was in IT. Uh, when I finished uni, which I studied at um, uh, in Wagga Wagga, a country town in New South Wales, uh, I did a business degree there and moved to the Big Smoke to Sydney and worked with IBM for it was close to ten years. But I moved as a part of that uh, journey up to Brisbane, and um, but I guess I really. It really dawned on me at one point when I was at a, an IT conference where I'd flown back to Sydney for an IT conference for, uh, for a few days and I was sitting in there falling asleep thinking, this is not what I want to be doing for the rest of my life. And you know, that was the first thing that dawned on me. And the second thing was I'm never going to be wealthy if I keep doing this either. So I pretty much made a decision then in that conference that I was going to make a change in my life, and um, at the time, my boss, he was down there for the conference as well, so I called him up and said, can we have breakfast in the morning, and um, can we meet early, seven o'clock, and that's uh, thats what we did, we were in the rocks kind of area, I remember it very clearly, I was quite nervous, but I basically walked in and sort of said, look, uh, his name is John, I said, John, I'm, uh, I've decided I'm going to resign, and I'll be leaving IBM in 12 months time. And um, he went, right, okay, what, have you, what are you going to do? I said, oh, look, John, I don't really know, but it'll have something to do with property. All I do know is that I can't keep going in this direction because, um, you know, we were at the time about to start a family. So um, I didn't, uh, I guess what I felt was I've got a few years then before my, you know, first happens to be now my first daughter, um, before she would be starting school and I prefer to sort of, have a shot at things and um, and see how I go before she starts school and, and my income becomes more I guess important to be stable and reliable. So um, yeah, so that's what we did. Uh, and, and really, from there, it was a matter of left IT and people started to ask me to help them buy property. So they started to say, "Oh, look, we're we're going to go and buy this property over here. Um, you know, what what do you think we can do with it?" So I'd, I'd give them a hand and help them out. Um, but also, I guess, probably backpedal a little bit there, sorry, is the way I was able to leave was that uh, I, I pretty much went and targeted completing a development project and making uh, a, a certain amount of money so that I could leave. I decided if I had 100K in the bank, um, that would be enough for me to give things a shot. So that's, that's kind of what we did and um, you know, worked on a project, uh, you know, pulled out uh, at that point ec- enough equity 12 months later to to fund that and then that's that's what made the move.
1: So, because you never did renovations, did you? You just went straight into doing developments. Correct. I started trying
0: to find renovations, so I I spent a lot of time, you know, as they say, going to every open house and picking a few suburbs. You know, narrow it down to a few. Get to be an expert in that area. Um, go to everything, which is what I did. But what I found was. First things first, I'm not handy, so it's really, uh, I don't know if it's the right idea to sort of go do something that you're not really uh, skilled at or or, or like. <laughs> you know. So I'm like, well, I'm not going to really be there sort of swinging the hammer and painting and tiling things, so that was probably up against me to start with. And the second point was uh, in that particular suburb, which in Brisbane, it was a suburb called Zilme, which I was focusing on for a period of time. Um, mostly because the price point was sort of that three eighty four hundred k, you could buy a house there. So to me, renovation seemed, and I think probably to most people, like a good entry point. But using the the sort of standard formulas that run around the place that you learn, you know, you need to sort of sell that house for say five hundred and thirty k if you spend a, you know ten ten percent on the renovation to make any kind of profit out of it. And I just couldn't find anything that was selling in that suburb for five hundred and thirty k. It was um, near impossible to find. So I've since learnt that obviously if you want to do reno, if you find a suburb with a larger delta between the low and high prices, it helps. But, um, but no, I got a few under contract. I investigated a few. I made loads and loads of offers but ev- eventually um, was sort of drawn to a, va- you know, a block of land in a very small sort of 12-lot subdivision in, in, a, in a suburb in Brisbane and um, and bought a block there and, and built a house and, you know, that's sort of my first project really. So, yeah.
1: yeah. That's similar that's to it. me. I never did renovations. I just thought, that's I don't want to spend my time doing that. Just jump straight into developments.
0: Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and some people are really great at it. Do um, you know? Like they really love cruising around, finding the best deals for various different things and being on the ground there and sort of it's a real high-paced environment, I think, high-intensity to sort of get in, get out and um, that's great. It's just I think it's it's always a good thing for investment strategy to actually pick something that's sort of aligned with what you enjoy as well.
1: Yeah, actually I remember being at work in a similar position to you where I um, decided that I needed to move on and do something differently or start working on something different. I remember yeah. having to... I'm asking for a pay rise at work and I think it was for about $1,500 and I had to write a brief to convince my superiors that I should get this pay rise and I spent all this time writing this brief and coming up with all the reasons why I added extra value and it it got knocked back in the end and I thought, I'm going to end up getting paid $100 more and it got knocked back and my... Life and future is kind of at the mercy of other people if I stay here being self employed. Mm-hmm. So I remember that being one of those points in time where I rode home from work that night going, I've got to take charge of this, take charge of my life.
0: Yeah, that's great. Good yeah. story. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So, and now $1,500 doesn't seem like a lot of money. Yeah, totally. Some totally. of the bills that you have to pay when you're a developer.
0: yeah it piles into comparison but i i I hear there for you though you know it's more about and for a lot of people i think that get into this is about the freedom you know the ability to actually create your own scenario and situation in life rather than be sort of delegated to and and i guess or or dictated to i guess um where I, i felt my parents were a little surprised well they were very surprised They didn't know i planned to leave uh ibm which in their eyes was just the best thing ever it's you know we were taught get a great job with a secure company and and there you go you're sort of set for life so they were a little shocked but i, I said to them look it's i think it's more risky actually for me to stay here because um things like you said there but also there's you know there were sort of various stages of retrenchments and redundancies happening and you really you know to some extent can just be out of your control a whole division could get purchased by you know, a takeover or a merger or something like that and then roles change and it's sorry, we don't need these guys anymore and um, I actually felt less secure in a in an employed, paid, salaried role than, um, than I now feel outside of that. So,
1: hmm. And what skills do you think you brought from IBM or that you picked up in your IT role that applied being a developer? Uh,
0: I think, um, well, IBM's education program were programs were really good which took me a while to actually recognize uh, until because I'd sort of gone from uni into a world-class organization with you know world-class training and that kind of thing and hadn't realized it until a fair way after it but my roles in IBM were all business development style roles so um, I was always out building networks talking with people um, creating sort of uh, partnerships and strategic alliances and I think it's very similar to what you need to do in development you need to be out building teams that are helping you create a result and as a salesperson at IBM where you know you you're selling a solution a service-based solution where you're trying to get a result for you know a company um, it's very similar you're assembling you know creating a solution solution and a vision and a proposal for that and then assembling a team of in, in the IT case there's a project manager there's a solutions architect there's you know um, technicians there's all sorts of people that form that team to help deliver that project and property developments very similar um, so I think it helped in that sense just being in that environment um, being in business development environment means you you're out there consistently turning over stones and chasing business and that sort of stuff which when you're in property development to find the next project and the next deal that's consistently what you need to do. So I think it taught me a lot of behaviors that you know transferred over quite well into property development.
1: So can you tell us then how you go out? You just mentioned that you go out and you try and find deals and you're talking to people. Yep. What are the kind of things that you're doing to find deals and partners for your developments now?
0: Well, I have to say now I think a lot of them find us a lot more than we find those deals but in the, in the early phases uh, it's very much you just consistently uh, on the phone with real estate agents and you know often doing say letterbox drops or you know there's just you kind of do a myriad of things. What I found has worked for us mostly is um, is through agents which might surprise a lot of people but it was building strong relationships with agents and them getting to know that um, we're going to be around for a long time and that we're here to actually sort of work together and help each other out and respecting and trusting the agents, that's been the strongest um, supplier of deals for us really. And um, you know, I think that probably, now I didn't connect the links before, that that probably has been helped by IBM. My role in, in IBM in a lot of ways was building channels, building partnerships. So we would have 20 or 30 resellers of our you know equipment there that um, it was my job to help them sell that equipment and to build partnerships with them. So I guess in a way, it's similar to having that network of real estate agents that know who you are, what you're after, that you have integrity and you respect them and um, uh, and being able to then move fast when things come up. That's been the keys for us in sort of finding deals.
1: Yeah, well, from their perspective, they just want to get a deal done themselves, don't they? They want to sell a property as quickly and as efficiently as they can. That's how they get paid ultimately. Yep, totally, Yeah,
0: exactly and sometimes when it's a really hot market they might not want to put it out onto the, the world's you know, the, the internet and have everyone see it because it creates a lot of work. <laughs> it's a lot of work in that when you, if you've got a really good property and you put it up on the internet and you've got to field 100 calls and then call back 99 people who, didn't, who weren't successful and then and deal with that, that's a lot of work when often they can put it to a small group of people and get it sold. So that's where we aim to be, that small group of people that move fast and you know, buy the good sites when we can.
1: And so how do you get ready to be able to move quickly? Do you prepare a project or an investment group and then look to strike or do you find the deal and then try and put it together? We we do a little bit of both, but the majority is we form the not
0: necessarily a group. It's usually just partnering up with you know other people, one or two other people. Uh, often it's a you know a, a, a married couple or that sort of thing. And we really get clear on, I guess, uh, if they're bringing the money to the table, we get clear on the finance capacity and what what capital have we got to work with, and then what borrowing capacity are we are we working with. And we understand then from that um, roughly the types of projects that we can go and complete with that sort of funding behind it and then we go specifically looking for those sorts of deals. So that means you know, yeah, as soon as we find something there, we can move really quickly.
1: Can you share with us a bit of the history from what you've been doing project-wise to where you are now? Because you've got multiple projects on at the moment, but can you just share with us how you've gotten to where you are and also what you're doing today project-wise? Yep, totally. So um,
0: we did that project, as I mentioned, which was the, the buy the block of land and house build. That was sort of the first project. Uh, it was it was really aimed at me learning how construction works. So I thought we will just build a single house. Um, while that was happening, I formed a group with two other people and we put some funds together and went and bought a splitter block. So that's, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if you have that. Well, it's a, I guess it's a Brisbane sort of a thing, a Queensland thing, which is a block which um, in this case has two titles, uh, sorry, two lots, but one title. So it's, a, it's not a subdivision. It's actually um, something where you just need to go and split the tiles with the titles office. But we bought that um, with the intention actually to just hold onto it, wait for the capital to grow, then go buy another one, and it's just to start to build up a portfolio. But um, you know, various things happen, like the global financial crisis, And um, that meant that that block was then losing money every year, basically. So we developed our way out of it. And then from there, I started to help other people, like team up with other people to go and find development deals. So after that one, we went and found one, another similar to that. And then so each, you know, I just sort of started to build from there and I did a number of splitter blocks Started to then – and somewhere we just sold the land and then started to sort of buy them and sell the land and then build one house. Then we went to building two houses and and we just gradually built up. At, I know at one point I used to sort of say, oh, we'll just do two projects at a time. That's all I felt I could handle. And then I had someone else join our business and then we were like, okay, so we're all, all of a sudden we're doing four and then we sort of just – blew our own, I guess, uh, mindsets out of the water there and just went, well, that's that's ridiculous. We can do much more than two at a time. Um, it was, And that was more just about being cautious, making sure we delivered them, making sure that there was profit, that they worked. And, you know, there's so many unknowns when you're just starting out doing projects around, you know, build costs and are you actually going to get the final sales number that you're projecting and, you know, there's, there's a whole lot there, especially in a, a flat market like a market that's not really doing anything. It's it's fine when a market's rising. You can you know, jump in, do a development. By the time you're finished, everything's gone up, you know, a reasonable amount of money. And, and it might, you know, so that might help you go well. But in the flat market, we were just want to test all that out. And then just probably in the last, um, oh, from their splitters, next one was a small um what we call LMR site and up here the LMR is the zoning and that means low to medium residential, which means you can put units or townhouses on, onto the site. So that was our next project. We did a small one of those where there was a house on a corner lot and we could put two townhouses on the back. So it was a, it was a smaller one, but it was kind of quite a big step because from splitter blocks and that kind of thing, it meant you had to go through the development approval process which you know, is where you come up with the designs, lodge them into council, council assess it and you approve it and then you've got to go through the building approval process to get everything you know correctly documented, ready to build. And So, so it was a whole – it was another step, I guess. It was a gradual step but a big one in terms of knowledge and learning and how long these things take. So we, we did that one and we sort of jumped from there into nine units um, because the process is effectively the same, the DA process, the building approval process and then – What's called the operational works process, which is your sewer and water and all your stormwater um, designs and all that sort of stuff. So that's we moved into that, and then sort of from there, um, I guess you know confidence was building, building, building. And at at one point, I think it was about sort of three, about three years ago, I kind of went, well, let's let's crank it up, you know, let's get a bit serious about this, and let's get it moving. So then we, I think in one year we picked up eight or nine projects. And started to sort of diversify in terms of the types of projects and the areas that we were in as we started to become more knowledgeable across like a large area of Brisbane. So we we kind of focus on the ten twelve k ring, um, but over that time in, in looking at feesos and numbers for lots of different suburbs, you get to know them you know pretty well and understand sales figures and prices. And and then in the last sort of couple of years, just sort of wound it up again a little bit more, and now running twenty projects with. Um, you know, it, anything from a one-to-four-lot subdivision to sort of four townhouses, five townhouses. Uh, f- we're not really doing many units. Uh, we've got one more block of units to complete. But um, I feel Brisbane, you know, is headed for an oversupply situation in the unit market, and that's been on the horizon for a year at least, I would think. You could sort of see that coming. But our focus now is really... In, in more the owner-occupier stock, which it actually, if I think about it, always has been. I've always preferred to do stuff that we're selling to owner-occupiers. I think it's a consistent flow of people. Plus, you can also put a bit more of your own uh, design sort of ideas and flare into it and create something quite nice. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a lot of luxury homes in there, um, townhouses, and uh, and that's really the bulk of, of what we're doing now. So there's about 63-odd properties in that sort of twenty projects, in total, and um, and that's that's where we're up to. So,
1: wow, that's that's pretty impressive. Twenty projects on the go at one time. Yeah, it's pretty intense. I got to tell you. How so, do you
0: manage that? Um, we've just put on a project manager, so that's that's really going to help uh, because it's been it's been quite a a handful to manage. But along the way, obviously, we try and. Try and build processes and procedures into things as much as possible, and and also try and standardise teams that we work with as much as we can, just to reduce the amount of duplication and workload. So we've kind of you know nailed down a building designer that we like to work with, and they they produce plans and and you know those sorts of things really quickly for us. Good designs at sort of less than an architect's price point. And also, far faster, like they're a lot faster. So, then with that, we've nailed down the town planner, the surveyors, the soil, you know, all the team is pretty much nailed down to, um, you know, pick one or, one of a couple. The, the, probably the biggest time consumers, I think, for us are selecting builders because there's not one builder that can do all of that, uh, you know, and, and get the best price because I often find getting that best price for that builder means. You've got to work really closely with them you've got to work really closely with design you've you've got to sort of you know drive efficiencies into it as much as you can and, and it's sort of it's it's interesting in terms of builders they tend to specialize with their thing which I can totally understand so you'll have a house builder that just does sort of a certain spec level and that's his that's his suppliers they're his people he goes to and and that allows him to be efficient whereas when when we start moving into different suburbs, different sized houses, types of houses, we've got to find a different builder with a different spec level, or build our own. So, um, how we handle it is we also use a CRM system, which you know all the projects are in there. As a team, we have a weekly project call. We run through everything and, and where it's up to, what's next, who's doing what. Um, so we've you know we've we've managed things that way, and I think now though we're we're just getting to the point of that's being revised so we're just revising now um how we manage the projects and the process and also as i mentioned bringing on the project manager which will help us bring a bit more i think a more procedure into it and and a better focus on the gantt chart which is the timelines so we, you know we really um and we've ex- experienced quite a, a construction boom in the last 12 months so the guys that I've found hardest to sort of nail down have been civil contractors, civil construction because they're the guys you need to get a site started because you need to get your sewer and water services in. But they've also not had a lot of work in the last five years. So now it's like for them it's like drinking from a fire hose. They just, yeah, I'll take it, yeah, I'll take it. You know, like, give me more work, give me more work. And they just overload themselves and just take on a lot of work and then they just sort of beg for forgiveness. So it's sort of like, yeah, we should be there next week. Yeah, it should be done next week. Yeah, and and that's where we found a lot of drag out has happened. Um, but anyway, that's part of bringing the project manager on. He can manage that a whole lot better and take me out of the day to day running of projects. Uh, is the goal so that I can go secure more deals, focus on the you know the marketing side of uh, the projects as well, and just um, and just uh, focus on the strategy of building the business also. So.
1: And with the stakeholders, which I'm guessing are your investors that you bring on, so I think you mentioned whether they're couples or small groups or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. it must be difficult managing that many stakeholders. Correct. And so what do you do to keep them informed and manage their expectations?
0: We tend to have um, regular meetings with the stakeholders and just give them regular updates on where things are up to as, as much as we can um, it is hard to sort of manage and, and update every single sort of step every week ha- however you know once a month is a pretty reasonable thing to be able to do and um, often they're across things to a certain degree anyway because they're they're sort of paying the invoices and they're They're signing fee proposals as well and stuff like that. So they're kind of knowing, you know, to some extent where things are up to and what's happening. Um, Yeah, so that's that's about how that goes, Um, yeah.
1: So you must have become something of a bit of a joint venture expert. So what kind of process or procedures have you put in place for screening people that you partner up with?
0: Um, We tend to spend a fair bit of time before kicking anything off with anybody and I think probably the biggest thing that we've put in place is just being transparent so it's not sort of not trying to sell anything like we we have the thing that where we say we don't sell anything we just show you how this thing works and and how it runs and if you like it you like it if you don't you don't that's totally up to you but in that approach you can be totally transparent with regards to how a project's going to work and when you're totally transparent, we can say, look, things are going to go wrong, uh, things will slip, things may be more expensive sometimes, they may be less expensive sometimes. Um, but you're really then, I guess, in a way um, understanding a, a person's personality in these initial meetings to see how, how they react to those sorts of things. So we're really transparent. We show example projects. We show real numbers, real spreadsheets, real timelines, and we sort of go, this is, this is how long it could take. This is the target, you know, and, and also we we really stress test a lot of the deals as well, so well, all of the deals, but we show um, the partners how we find the break-even point in a deal and share that. This is what this deal looks like. This is how it would break even. Um, here's like a low ball kind of low estimate, a middle estimate and a high estimate. Um, so we really, I think in these first couple of meetings that we have, by being transparent, we're establishing I guess the way that we would work together. We're also um, break, getting people to be ready for the fact that things will change, and they do. Things do happen that you don't expect, and there's always going to be things that you actually cannot predict. Um, so we're running through that. We're also sort of explaining the process of how we work. So you know we will be explaining well, when when this proposal comes in or when this decision has to be made. Our approach is going to be based on, you know, we're always going to be focused on what's the end result we're trying to get, removing emotion from it and personal preference. Um, so we're sort of up front sort of, you know, framing that as to how we're going to make decisions and move forward. Um, and I guess, yeah, it's, I think it's mostly about being open. Roles and responsibilities, I guess, is a, a clear thing to cover off in the early phases as well. Um, you know, what is our role, what will we be covering, what we'll we be doing, what's their role, how can we both make sure we move things along quickly. Um, with the deals, you know, t- typically um, we're showing a cash flow as well. So we're, we're saying all funds, you want to have all funds into a deal at the start and this is the reason why. So we will take people through that and explain that um, that allows the deal to keep going. If, the, if it doesn't have the funds in there, it can't run you can't breathe it will stop things will go wrong um, but if it also has all the funds in there and we've actually allowed for buffers and overruns and timeframes in it it means that the emotional side of things can be taken from from the deal because that's what that's where i find the biggest conflict is people get emotional and something happens they get upset about it failing to resort back to what's the end result that we're trying to get to is this can we still get there or close to it um yeah, then, then that's that's I guess how we've been approaching things.
1: So, yeah. with those roles and responsibilities, how do you yep. divide up? Or ha- the decision making, I guess, would be the most important part because you want to keep things moving along and having to make or making decisions quickly. I find is an important part of delivering a successful project. Yep. So, how do you, I guess, maintain control of the key decision making and be able to make that quickly, or do you need to consult?
0: well we've um key decision making generally we consult but it depends i guess on the app like what's what's the um you know if there's a financial impact then we'll need to have a chat about it you know if it's going to cost more then we do justify or we do need to have a conversation about that and get it answered as quickly as possible um and and that's really just it's all about communication and it's really about well here's a key decision um, we'll email we'll text and we we'll, we'll call and to say look this this is a key decision that needs to be acted upon quickly to keep things moving um, and if it's not then obviously we just give it its relevant priority uh, if, if there' are small on-site decisions that that need to be made you know which they often do you're in the middle of construction and builder will call you he'll say look this doesn't work as per the plan do you mind if we do it this way and really that has no there's no real impact to you know the salability of the product. There's no cost impact. There's no so. There's no real need to consult anybody. So, um, so yeah, I guess it just depends on the decision. But generally, it's consultative, and um, and especially when there's financial sort of ramifications to it.
1: And what about exit strategies? What about if it either all goes wrong, or how do you plan for getting out of the deal?
0: Yeah, we do. We look at the multiple exit strategies at the very start. So we come up with usually a, a various ways to sort of how the deal could go and agree on, I guess, um, I guess it's more about, again, it's more of a consultative type approach. But if it's a, I'm trying to think of some different projects here. Um, let me think, let me think, let me think. I mean a lot of the stuff that we've been doing has been based around let's build it and sell them all but we'll also you know when we're discussing that project up front before even going and finding a project for a person or or with somebody else we'll sort of say what's what are your goals so it all all comes back to that as well what are their goals initially and then if it is to build a portfolio they do want to keep some properties then it's it's a matter of actually putting that exit strategy onto a feasibility up front as well and deciding with the project that you do find eventually you find this project you go, look do you want to sort of keep a couple of these or do you want to, um, do you want to just sell them all or, or what is it? And it's probably relevant here. So a lot of the projects that we're doing or most that we're doing at the moment, it's in the, the partners, it's in their entity and their buying name. So it's effectively, I guess you'd say it's not technically a joint venture, although we're doing a profit share with these guys. So we just kind of leave it to, well, if you want to keep a couple at the end, then we need to just get them valued and work out what the equity gain's been. And then we do the share on the equity gain or if you sell them, then that's clearly, that's the end result. So, yeah. So, we, we do look at those sort of um, options early up, early on.
1: That was going to be my next question about how you get paid or how it works. I presume that you charge some sort of project management fee and then some kind of profit sharing at the end. Yeah. And look, this is all,
0: um, we're just, we're, I'm just reviewing this at the moment as to how we do that. Because um, I, I, it's been working, f- I think, for partners, but not so well for us. So it's something that um, we've we've we're a qualified we're a licensed real estate agency. So we act as a buyer's agent. So we we have a payment for finding a site. But um, I guess if you were two JV partners together and you decide to do a project, you'd you're more likely going to pay a buyer's agent, or possibly someone else who brings you a site anyway. So, we see that as still something that stays in place. And then, generally, we've been doing uh, a profit share along the way with the, with some monthly payment as well as the project management fee. So, it's that's still pretty much remain the same. We're just adjusting a few things. But um,
1: why is it? Yeah. Why are you tweaking it? What What about it isn't working for you? Um. What about it isn't working
0: for us is the percentages that we've been sharing based on the kind of results we've been able to achieve and the value that we're bringing. So there's an extreme amount of skill, I believe, that's involved in actually firstly finding a deal that you can make work and then actually making it work. Uh, And I I guess this is a lesson in my own uh, that I've really just gotten in the last few weeks in my own value and self-worth and it's been i've been i've seen that our abilities and skills are far more valuable than we've been charging for and actually it's and, and that's that's no disrespect to the people that have worked with us so far we've needed to go through that journey however um if we continued charging what we charge, uh, we won't have a business. So we, we just can't do it anymore. <laughs> that's, that's the reason for the change.
1: Yeah. And are you willing to share what that profit split is percentage-wise? or
0: What it was or what it will be?
1: Uh, well, I guess what, you're, what it is now or what it was. Yeah, You don't need to share what it's going to be. Well, it was, we
0: were giving 70% of the profit to the partner. So, an example of that is we just finished a project and the partner's cash contribution was around 280k and their profit was 140 on top of that. For um, uh, their role was to obviously pay the bills and sign the checks and that sort of stuff. If you looked at that over the life of a project, it's it's maybe 10, 20 hours of work. And yes, there's a value to money. Uh, however, Um, that's like a 40-50% return on cash which is pretty fantastic and um, um, the skill and knowledge and and resources that we've had to build up to be able to achieve that has taken me sort of six years, seven years and I feel that um, as the people finding that project and running that project that um, our share of that project should be higher.
1: Yeah, well, my immediately thought is it should be higher because I know what's involved with having to do all the work. Yeah, and I think
0: I think that's something that unless you've done it, you don't realize how much is involved. It, you know, it all, it's all made out to be easy and, you know, you just hire a few people and do this project. However, um, you know, that's, that's not really the case. There's a, there's a lot of work involved in these things, a lot of work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. More than
0: 30% in my view. Yeah, totally totally so and that's that's why we're changing changing that and I and you know it's not, so far no one's got a problem with that I think it was it was not the people that we've engaged with or spoken with Dave it was always just what we'd offered up so it was really just our own self-worth and our own value and um, I think early on I felt that you know we needed to build up some more you know build up uh, skill knowledge we need to build up runs on the board and you know bring clients on but I think now after completing 18 projects, um, all of them successful that we've got the runs on the board now. And obviously we've got another 20 projects to come. So by the time they're delivered, that's 38 projects um, that we've, we've run you know, from go to woe, like all parts of it. So um, And I, I guess I sat back and looked at it and went, as a development business, what we've created is a $45 million business with a you know a blended sort of profit of five or six million dollars across that, and, um, and and when you're getting a very small share of that, because we need we you know our we, we've been paid along the way, but you need to eat and you still need to leave. But that would we would say we pay us along the way, and that comes off our profit share. So effectively, the thirty percent profit share that we're getting at the end of a lot of the projects, um, especially if they run over a little bit. They're still being profitable, but we're getting you know uh, ten, fifteen percent at the end, which is not really you know sustainable as a model. And I looked at that and go, well, if you look at some pretty reasonable sized development companies around the place, um, a forty, fifty million dollar company is effectively what we've built with three people. So I guess our focus now is to sort of do more. Um, projects where we've got a larger share in it and also seek out a larger funding partner and a larger backer whereas you know i I look at that and go if we have a larger backer um that comes in and works with us across the projects it de-risks the whole business because the um the reliance on any one particular project always going well is removed a little because it's a blend Uh, whereas we're doing every project with a different investor if anything goes wrong then that could that's dangerous um you know touch wood it's all gone well however if you if you are one if you're a large company and i've got mates that are bigger developers who who have lots of experience in this game and i guess some projects go well some don't um and we had one last year that didn't didn't go as well and i paid for it personally to make sure the investor um got, got everything back every single piece of money back and it was Nothing due to our own fault, but it was just me preserving my own integrity and the integrity of the business. However, it hurt. <laughs> and it, yeah, so so anyway, it's exciting times, I think. We're going to change the model and move forward and um, still work with partners and just do it in a way that's um, equally more equally beneficial.
1: Excellent. Well, I know you're a big believer in mindset and working on yourself or you're doing some professional development. Totally. Yeah. Can you share with us how you've gone from a one-man band doing a splitter block to someone that's got a forty million dollar turnover? Um,
0: I realised fairly early on in the piece when I, um, after I quit my job, and I was looking at, um, I was looking at a lot of different, you know, properties and, and, you know, I guess reverse engineering a lot of deals, and I was seeing that people whatever strategy you picked, there was someone making money out of it somewhere. So, you know, if you picked renovation like we spoke about earlier, maybe I wasn't the guy making any money out of it but somebody was. You know, there there were people around who were making good money out of that. There was people who made good money out of subdivisions, people who could make good money from development, people who had built up significant buy and hold portfolios from buying good buy and hold properties at the right times of cycles. Um, Any strategy can work. Uh, and i found then that the common denominator across all things was myself and the way i thought so i pretty much focused then on um, just continually uh, i guess learning more about my mind and how how my brain works and how my thinking works and what drives you know what drives success how successful people think um, and that resulted in just doing a lot of different personal development programs and i you know continue to this day to do um, a few programs a year. I just got back from uh, Bin Ten Island off the coast of Singapore for ten days, where um, that was a personal development type, you know, getaway, I guess, as well. Where it took the whole family as well. Um, but it's you know, it was in a l- luxurious place, a resort lifestyle to really embrace the uh, the abundance, I guess, uh, mentality as well. Um, but yeah, mindset's a big thing for me, and um, I I'd say. Eighty, 90% of the books I've read in the last five or six years are all about mindset and, um, and it's something that I realized early on, you know, if I was trying to go out and find deals and just telling myself a story that there are no deals and they're hard to get, then that was just going to be what I would find. So I went about how do I adjust how I think? How do I need to think to be successful? How do I need to think to be motivated and driven to go out there and, and find a deal um, how do I need to think to get back up when I get knocked down? Because you know there's a few knockdowns early on. Um, I lost some money in early projects. you've got to be able to get up and keep going from these things. So in terms of um, you know, how do we go from one or two to, to 40 mil worth, it's been a gradual step thing where you, you, one thing that also builds confidence is and momentum is getting results. so you know small wins small wins, complete a project, make some money, yeah, cool, we can do that, get on to the next one. You know, it's just natural thing for us to actually, um, you know, move forward when we, when we believe we can because that, that, I guess that's a key thing you find is, is there's a few comments and sayings around one of them's you'll only ever act up until your beliefs. So you can set any sort of big goals and there's a lot of things out there that say go and set a big goal and you know, stretch yourself and all that sort of stuff. But ultimately if you don't in deep down believe that, you won't take action toward it. And I'm sure plenty of people have tried that before. I'll set this really big goal. That's, what, that's what's you know, sort of said out there in the world that you should do. And then if you ultimately don't believe it, then you just won't go for it. So then it comes back to well, how do I change my beliefs? And, you know, there's a whole bunch of methods to obviously do that and some of it's um, about achieving as well. You know, achieving results helps you change your belief. There's, um, you know, I've, I've studied and become a, a trainer and practitioner of neuro-linguistic pro- programming so you can actually kind of rewire your brain as to how you think um, And and done a lot of things in that way that have helped me, I guess, improve my knowledge of myself and awareness, help me pick big goals, go
1: for them. I wondered why you kept mirroring my um, movements. <laughs> <laughs> it's, sub-con- it's It's not conscious now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I kept scratching my right eyebrow and you kept following me. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: it's all good, right? It all helps,
1: all this stuff. You know? Oh, look, I, so much of your success in life is between your ears. Mm -hmm. What you believe is what you achieve. That's it. And I look at it and go, if if
0: one person can do it, anyone can do it. And that's how I look at the business now and that's how I go, oh, hey, look at the size of the business that we're building. And then a lot of now is about like the start of this year was about surround myself with people who are well ahead of where I want to be, like of of where I want to be. So, you know, I've joined joined some organizations and things where there's people in there running $100 million businesses. And so, well, these are the guys I want to learn from now. Like this is, you know, these are the people I need to go and hang out with. These are the people that because the more you immerse yourself in that and you realize that that guy that's turning over 100 mil or 200 mil or whatever in his company, he sort of puts his pants on one leg at a time just like you do. And he started at the start just like you did. And he started not knowing anything, and he started just rolling with the punch. It, you, it just builds that, hey, I can do this. Like, you know, we're all the same. Like, we all sort of inherently have this, you know, generally same level of abilities and skills. And you know, you don't have to be smarter than anybody else. You don't have to be, you know, more degrees or qualified than anybody else. Like, you know, it, it's just that's just not true. So, I think surrounding yourself with those people is a key, that's a key strategy I guess I'm focusing on this year is to get around the people that have had the success. So, Yes,
1: yeah, so and one of my favorite sayings is, if you want to soar like an eagle, don't hang around with turkeys.
0: Yeah, I like that one. That's good. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> I, I use good that one quite often when I'm talking with my other developer friends.
0: That's fantastic. I like it. But so I mean, good. that
1: applies to even people in your team, people that you've got providing support, consultants. Mm -hmm. They need to be either ahead of you or thinking big also. Yep,
0: I agree. Yep, I agree. If you surround yourself with it, then it's just going to happen, right? It's going to cause it.
1: I'm always fascinated by mindset, particularly when I look at elite sports people, elite tennis players, for example, and how they just believe in themselves. And then when they get into really tight situations, how they're Able to think their way through the pressure and play the big shot at that really critical time, and what must be going on inside their head? What are they thinking about? How do I, how am I going to get out of this situation? And believing deep down that they can,
0: yeah, totally. And that's the thing that um, I think inspires you know, is inspiring about those kind of guys. You just go, This person has a rock solid, unshakable non-movable belief in themselves and you know I, I, a guy i started look, watching last year which many people might know conor mcgregor have you seen him from um uh he's in the ufc the fighting the fighting you know this guy go, go grab some youtube videos and watch conor mcgregor if anyone's got like a hundred percent bulletproof belief in themselves it's this guy and um but he talks a lot about and a lot of sports people talk a lot about visualizing as well you know seeing yourself having achieved that success like already seeing yourself having done the thing that you want to do and i think you know like the tennis guys they see themselves hitting that winning shot you know there's studies that have been done on control groups you know shooting basketball hoops and one group for a week visualize themselves seeing it get through who get it you know 80 percent more through than the other group that doesn't you know there's there's a whole bunch of things like that that i think Um, have been happening in sports for years that, you know, happen in business but I don't know that it gets talked about as much because it's probably seen as a bit woo-woo or or whatever, you know, but it works.
1: Yeah, well, what I've been doing this year is every day reading my goals before I get started each day. I'll open Mm -hmm. up what the goals are for the year and I'll just spend five minutes looking through them and I find that's really helpful to keep me focused on what is it I want to get done this year and then also a couple of years out.
0: Yeah, that's great. I like it.
1: And then also having affirmations. Yeah. Yeah, having a list of affirmations that you've got on your phone and you just listen to them in the morning or as you're walking around, that's, that stuff seeps into your brain and you start yeah, it believing does, it. Huh? Yeah. you got any recommended books or interesting books that you've read lately that people might be interested in?
0: Yeah, I do. I'm always reading books. It's something that's a constant. So um, the favorite one that I've just finished is called Leveraging the Universe by Mike Dooley. So um, Mike Dooley is the guy who does the, um, the Notes from the Universe quotes. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's a daily uh, email that you get or quote that you get that sort of talks about um, – leveraging the universe funnily enough but i love that book it's fantastic it's um probably the biggest thing i got out of that is y- you hear a lot in the personal development circles you know just worry about the why don't worry about the how which i used to always go that's bs how can you just just sort of float around going you know i know why i want something or what i want you know and this is what i want and not come up with any sort of plans to actually get it like that's just it does just turn up and um he really explained that concept very well in that book and talked about um, actually making those plans and taking the actions but I guess it's how you look at those plans and, and how you um, – what importance you place on them almost. He almost says you just got to take a lot of action in various different ways and don't be, I guess, attached to you know, this is the exact way how I'm going to reach my specific goal but be open to the fact that various other things can happen and various other things most likely will happen, i.e. the universe. You know, these chance coincidences that happen or these things that seem like luck or whatever is more about the fact that you're taking action in the direction of your goal and the universe will provide, as they say. So cracking book. Loved it. Um, I don't don't
1: believe in luck. Yeah, there you go. I don't believe it exists. That's it. I keep telling that to my wife, she shakes her head, <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah
0: what others uh what else have we got so power the power of your subconscious mind that's a good book by joseph murphy this, the title kind of says it all but it's again about I guess uh training your subconscious mind, so that's yeah, I found that to be a really good book um Two good books to sort of, if you want some real proof about how you think creates what you achieve in life are E-squared and E-cubed by Pam Grout. So those books are, they're, they're really easy to read because they're both um, nine energy experiments. So they're, they're actual sort of experiments that you can do you know, out in the physical world to... Um, to show how your awareness of things and I guess and how you think creates your reality. It's they're pretty cool books. Um, what else? The other books are more probably a bit technical. So, and one I'm reading now is called Scaling Up, which is by a guy called Vern Harnish, and it's a book about the um uh, Rockefeller habits. So, you know, Rockefeller, they the Rockefeller family built the biggest, you know, well amount of wealth in the U.S. I think that's ever been known. I think they say if you combine Buffett and, you know, um, Gates and these guys together, that would be about what the Rockefellers uh, were worth. So this this guy Vern Harnish sort of um, has distilled their success into a bunch of uh, habits around business and what they've done in business and. Um, it's a real technical book. It's almost like a checklist and a workbook. And it's it's got a whole bunch of things like one-page business plans and, you know, it's it's sort of focused on four parts of business, people, strategy, education and cash. And um, it's really about how you scale. So, you know, it's how do you get from a million-dollar business to a 10 million, how do you get from 10 to 100, how do you get from 100 to 200, you know, it's it's about that sort of thing. So,
1: That's that one,
0: which is pretty cool.
1: I actually, sorry to interrupt, I actually read a biography of John D. Rockefeller last year called Titan. So if you want an inspiring book, that's quite a good one. I might just
0: check that out. Yeah, yeah,
1: he was an amazing guy. He, when Rockefeller built his empire, there was no personal income tax at the time. Oh, great. That's that's (laughs) how come he, well, they were making... Millions and millions of dollars at one stage, Standard Oil was doing something like three or four percent of America's GDP. Wow. That's insane. Most of that was going to John D. Rockefeller and no income tax. That's why they've still got so much wealth to this day because it all got uh, put in trust and they just had so much money. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Pretty amazing story. That's cool. Yeah, I'll check that book out. That sounds interesting. All right. So, what's ahead then for the future?
0: For the future, so we're um, we're kind of re, refocusing the business a little at the moment, so we can help people get into property a little earlier than the development stage. So, i.e., buying good, solid buy and hold sort of properties. So, we're sort of building the buyers' agency side of our business up. Um, because I realize a lot of the guys that we work with in development and partner with in development have made their cash by, and their capital by having good buy and hold properties that they've held for a number of years. And that's how they've come up with half a million, a million dollar equity so that they can actually go and do development. And so uh, we're looking at, that saying, looking at that thinking, well, if we can help a whole bunch of people buy some really good properties in Brisbane at the moment, because I think Brisbane's, you know, our median price is still pretty low. Compared to the other states, there's still quite a lot of value here. And as a longer term view, buying one or two good properties in reasonable areas can help you build up that that capital to be able to develop later. So we're expanding that part of the business, and then um, we've, as I mentioned, we're still focusing on finding new development deals. So we're um, we are at the moment changing that that profit split and just working on that model, and as well. Um, for me now it's about to grow the business it's about creating multiple streams of income and to do that via some really strong strategic partnerships that we can um build so you know we're looking to help some guys um create our buy build hold model so we you actually buy build some properties and hold them and we'll help find them and manage the projects as a as a service you know sort of business there and then um we're also just sort of looking to team up with some other, um, I guess you know, like financial planners who are helping people build a goal to retirement. They're helping people come up with, say, a, a strategy to create a hundred grand passive income in retirement, which does include obviously shares and other things. But um, we're looking at okay, how can we help as a part of that and build a partnership with that planner so we can then go and offer that to people as well as. Um, we're looking to work with a couple of um, financial, um, sorry, financiers, you know, brokers, so we can come up with an offer around that as well. So for me now, it's about, um, we've got 20 projects running. There's a really strong, you know, um, pipeline there that we need to manage with reasonable profit coming in the next sort of 12, 18 months as they finish. The new projects will be uh, a high profit, so that will be good. And now, for me now, in the next sort of 12 months, the focus is on, um, how do we build more streams of income into the business? So
1: so with that buy, build, hold offering, could you mm-hmm. have a trailing slice of the rental that they get?
0: Um, possibly could, I guess. have hadn't really considered it but um, yeah, you possibly could.
1: Yeah, well, I just think you kind of want to get a piece of the action for all the work that you've done, not just the short upfront effort but then mm-hmm. get a bit more of the long-term value
0: yeah look totally i mean it's it's an option or I guess do you build the project property management business to to manage all of those uh, as a possibility um, Yeah, it's a it's a good point we may we may look at that as a model uh, as a way forward because it we can help you know with the stuff that we're doing now we help people get into a project sell one of the two properties out they're left with a property that's got a really low LVR with strong cash flow and then they're therefore ready to go and do something again straight away rather than buy a property, wait 5 or 10 years through a cycle which if, you can, if that's what you can afford then that's where you've got to start but if you can afford to do development and you know sell a couple, keep a couple then that's a far better result as well. So you know, if we can help them do that then yeah, there'll be some good cash flows coming in out of some of those properties. So,
1: yeah. Sounds good. Well if people want to find out more about you or your company, where should they head to?
0: A um, good place to start is um, connect with me on LinkedIn. So we, we're we pretty active on LinkedIn, connect with us there. And then also we have a Facebook page which is uh, Shane, just Shane Hiscock Property Facebook page and then our website which is shanehiscockproperty.com.au. So you can uh, find us at all those spots and um, you know we put a bit of updates and some information out here and there. We try not to spam people, so...
1: And how long did it take you to come up with your business name? Oh, ages. Yeah, I'm, I'm really good at creative <laughs> business names.
0: It was a real lack of anything else actually. Did you know how it started actually? my The actual business name is House Machine because um, I did a joint venture with a architect in the very beginning to create a uh, prefab housing which was hence the house machine kind of name which was, you know, get a few standard designs and be able to prefab houses. This was like eight years ago now. I think we're way too early and everything was getting built offshore though so nothing could be financed. So that didn't work. And then, um, yeah, look, you know, I'm, I'm not, I've got to say I'm not great at business names. <laughs>
1: well, I, tell, I sometimes tell people I build dream machines when they ask me what I do.
0: Dream machines? Yeah. Tell me more
1: about that. Well, the places that uh, people have their dreams, their dream homes. Nice, I like it. Yeah, so it kind of intrigues them and they ask a bit more.
0: That's very cool. Yeah. Well, we have another development company. It's called Aprivia, which is um, it's a combination of my daughter's names. So, uh, But that's the one we'll sort of start to drive the the development company through and do more of the boutique luxury developments in our own, our own brand, and our own name. This business will remain more like a service business, I guess. So,
1: yeah. And just quickly... What's your view on diversifying? Because it sounds to me like you've got a lot of things going on. I always try and stay focused on one particular thing and do that quite well. Yeah. Obviously, you're able to juggle a few more uh, projects or ideas.
0: Yeah, I just think um, oh, that's how I started this business. I was very, very niche and very focused on one sort of thing, right down to one type of development, which was at the time splitter blocks. Um, but what I realized is that um, some, like markets change, things change. And I guess um, if you look at a lot of big businesses, they are diversified in some way. Um, because it gives them safety and it gives them, uh, I guess, a buffer. And when one thing's not working, something else potentially is. So I think you can look at specialization and niche in a lot of different ways. And for me, it's probably more around the type of client that we work with. That's our specialization. So we're working with um, typically professionals in high-paying jobs who are time poor. That's really our niche and focus is helping those guys out. Um, whether they're a bit younger or they're a bit further in their cycle, we're looking to help that specific type of client out in terms of their property needs. So, um, And then if you looked at the types of properties we're actually constructing, that's fairly niche at the moment. They're all very similar in terms of their um, end user market, so who they'd be sold to, so that's quite niche. Although they're different developments in different areas, the product type i.e. the houses and townhouses that we're building are at a certain spec level so i think that's niched um so there there for me i feel we're still quite niche we're not trying to be everything to all people um we're not particularly great at um doing a development in ipswich it's it's far outside of our zone um brisbane we know very well we know 10 to 12 you know 12ks and inwards is our area so i think yeah, I'm all for being specific, and all for sort of having some options inside that specific to keep things um, keep things boiling along when other things might not be going so good. So, because we if we just focused on splitters in a certain price point, uh, we'd be out of business right now because everyone started paying too much for them. The land bank, you know, the people land banking, and rightly so. Someone in Sydney who's just doubled their money in the last five years anyone then that's anyone who owned a house in Sydney just about. Um, who sees a property in Brisbane that's on two lots of land and it's 600K, says that's a bargain. Whereas for us to do a project, we might have need to buy that for 5, 520. So the guys from a different state often are buying these properties, paying more. If we just focus on that strategy, then we wouldn't be doing anything. So
1: I think that's interesting that you've structured your business around a customer group.
0: Mm. Yeah, and that's not by design either. That's just probably more by that's how we that's kind of the people we ended up attracting. It's the kind of people we ended up like like to work with that we get along with. Who, you know, there's a mutual respect, and um, it's the, and that's just like I think that that is another thing I've learned from IT was a, in IBM. I felt like we just had to deal with any we had to work with any client that was a client of the company, whereas a lot of the time you know, it was more work and more effort and more difficult to work with certain types and personalities and that sort of stuff where it was not a good service for either of us. It doesn't help anybody if I'm dealing with uh, a client or a a customer that doesn't have the same values as I do. And likewise for them, they don't like dealing with me if they they have different values than I do. It's just, you're just going to grate on each other and you're actually doing each other a disservice. So I feel it it's very much comes back to the types of people you're working with.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> I love that saying from Warren Buffett that life's too short to work with people that you don't like.
0: Yeah, yeah, we have a, a bit of a rule around that, so yeah.
1: <laughs> very good. And that's it. Very- well, that's probably a good place to leave it. I'll let you get back to project management.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for being on the Property Developer Podcast. My pleasure. It's been great. Have a great day. See you later, Shane. Cheers. See you. Bye. Okay, there you go. A property developer that is taking his business to the next level. I think Shane is taking his developing business in a really interesting direction and I'm sure it will be a success. It goes to show how far you can come in five or six years if you persist and continue to deliver value for people. I enjoyed my conversation with Shane and here's three points that stuck out for me. One. Take the time to expand your mind. I believe it is important that you keep your brain active by continually learning something new. That may be reading a biography, attending a seminar, or doing a formal course. It's a great way to expand your thinking, learn about alternative concepts, or just be inspired by what other people have achieved. If you're not improving, then you're going backwards, and there is so much awesome stuff to discover in this world. Two, value your skills, abilities, and time. Shane talked about the lesson he is learning about valuing his skills and contribution. This is always good to remember, as you need to set how much you think you are worth. And following from my first point about expanding your mind, the more you learn, the more value you will be able to bring to the world, and thus charge for your value accordingly. And this also extends to your time. Use it well, and hang around with people that you want to emulate. Soar with the eagles, not forage with the turkeys. Three, think about ways to better serve your customers by expanding your services. I like how Shane is looking to grow his business based on his existing customer needs. This horizontal and vertical expansion is a great method of understanding what your clients may need now, but also in the future, and helping them achieve it. Have you ever thought about how you might expand your business offering to service your existing clients? It might be worth jotting down some ideas about how you could. You never know what you might come up with. All right, that's another show almost done. Thanks again for listening in. You can find out more about Shane via his LinkedIn profile or his Facebook page at Shane Hiscock Property. If you enjoyed the show, an iTunes rating would be awesome. Or head over to the Property Developer Podcast website and leave a comment. Otherwise, join me on Instagram at Property Developer Podcast as I share my pictures of property developer porn. So, until next time, may you squeeze on that extra unit. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Property
0: Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas, and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.